Liara Rue is a sex worker, political organizer, writer, and artist. She also does comics, stars in porn, and has become a prominent emerging voice. Her recently published memoir, The Whore of New York, has received a Glory New York Times review, and she's been interviewed by Vogue and Vice. She's brilliant, charismatic, and a truly independent thinker. Join me for this informative conversation. Alrighty. Hey, Liara. It's, it's a pleasure to meet you today for the first time. Congratulations on, on your, your new book. Uh, you're, you, you, I think you mentioned you're running late because you, you just, uh, you, there was an article about you in Vogue, something like that. Oh yeah. I just, uh, had a really fun interview go up with Emma Spector. Um, it was pretty funny. We talked a lot about hot pink and how trendy it is for that to appear on book covers right now. Um, I personally am a big fan of the trend, so happy to be a part of it. Well, Hot Pink is very sexy, and your your book certainly stands out, uh, both in terms of the spine <laughs> and and the cover. It's a super mm. super cool book, and uh, having you know being mentioned Vogue, that's really cool. And just a couple of days ago, you also had a, a New York Times review, um, a full article about your book. Uh, so once again, congratulations. I mean, that's, that's absolutely phenomenal, but let's get into some of the, uh, the serious and, uh, and deep stuff that you, you tackle in this book. One of which, um, sex workers experience more violence from the police than they do from their clients. And, uh, and also on Twitter, you've also mentioned kind of like, you know, how scary it can be to be uh, a sex worker. Uh, do you, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think um, you're very vulnerable when you're doing sex work. And luckily, I never was in a room with someone who was actively trying to hurt me. But it was absolutely always in the back of my mind. Um, And unfortunately, I did have quite a few friends who had either violent encounters with the police or with their clients. Um, I think that, you know, there's a lot of stigma around being a sex worker and also because it's illegal, people assume that they can just get away with doing whatever to you, um, and that you'll have no one to help you. I think the existence of a lot of the anti-pimping legislation as well also creates this really painful effect where people don't want to help sex workers unless they are up to something nefarious. You know, it's really hard to find someone who could be a driver, like a bodyguard in these types of situations because most people just don't want to get involved because they know that they could be charged with a crime. And so a lot of the people that are involved in the industry are criminals. Um, for better or for worse, you know, um, if you criminalize something, I guess usually for worse, it's like drugs, you know, like there's probably not very much benefit at all to having these industries be controlled by people with the types of dispositions who aren't afraid of going to jail or the consequences of that, you know? Um, 
So, so to be clear, I mean, you'd like to see things more legalized, right? Uh, Oh yeah. I think, um, well, decriminalized, um, legalized would mean that there are probably a lot of, um, regulations that are introduced into the industry, um, in Nevada, for example, it's legalized, but people can only work in brothels that can take 50 to 80% of their income um, in addition to charging them rent, charging them for condoms, charging them for food, and they have to live in these remote areas away from, away from cities. And so it becomes this really dramatically unpleasant work. Um, whereas decriminalization, it's sort of like weed in New York right now. It's not legalized, um, but you also can't be charged for selling it, which is pretty cool in my opinion. Yeah. The weeds definitely had uh, quite a renaissance across the States recently. Of, <laughs> um, yeah. The decriminalization, which is, which is good to see even in conservative States, but, uh, mm-hmm. but sticking to, to sex work, uh, um, have you had any bad kind of like episodes with the the police? Uh, personally, I haven't. I haven't had any run-ins with the police ever that I know of. Um, but I've definitely had friends. Usually it's friends that have done more street-based work where the police tend to be a little more aggressive because they think that girls who are in that position are going to have less access to community and resources for recourse. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I mean, there is this concept in in terms, of, I guess it's more like a Marxist thing, but of a, a, a false consciousness and the idea that, you know, perhaps, you know, the idea that uh, women that say that, you know, it's not, you know, there's no real, how should I say this? Like it's their body and that it, it's not hurting themselves and they're really happy doing it. Like some people would say, they don't, you know, they're they're in some sort of denial. That's the idea of you know false consciousness. They don't, they're not really fully aware of the choices they're making. I guess trying to question their agency. What, what would you, what would you say to people that make that argument? Um, I think, you know, there is this idea of epistemological privilege, which is basically you know, who is able to have their knowledge viewed as sound, their ways of thinking viewed as sound. Um, And I think that's why you often see in academia people doing literature about um, a minority group that they're not a part of, but their writing be more viewed as more sound than someone who's actually from that community. Um, so like back in the day, a lot of anthropologists used to be white men who would go into, uh, quote unquote, primitive tribes and live with them and write down observations and then come back and write about them. Um, and as people from these cultures started coming out and saying, Hey, like we don't consider ourselves primitive and, um, also, a lot of what you wrote about us was wrong and totally missed the point. Um, the white academics sort of pushed back and they were like, oh, you know, you don't really know what you're talking about because you're not educated like us. Um, I think that's a really 
common way of thinking about these things, but doesn't necessarily mean that it's right. And I think even if people are, I think there are some sex workers who really love their work, who really enjoy it and get a lot out of it. And then there definitely are sex workers who don't really enjoy it and wish they could be doing something else, but feel like they have to say that they enjoy it because, I mean, I feel like you would have to be a pretty shitty human being if you're going to see a sex worker who's posting like, I fucking hate my job. I wish I could quit, but I can't afford to. Like, you're probably like, unless you're like a very sadistic person, you're going to avoid her. But, you know, like. I don't think most girls want to see clients like that, you know, like. <laughs> so, so, so basically, th- if you've got, uh, so rather than some sort of self-denial, there might be more like like a false representation perhaps from a business. I think uh, there's some false representation, but then there there are a, a lot of people in the industry do genuinely love it. And I know so many girls who see themselves doing this work for the rest of their lives. And even for me personally, it's hard to imagine quitting for good, you know, like never seeing another client again, because a lot of my clients I really love. And some of them even, you know, it's like, you know, we can just like be friends. Like you don't have to pay me anymore. Like it doesn't have to be a transactional relationship. And they're like, look, like, I'm a billionaire like I love being able to give you money and knowing that it makes your life easier is really great for me so why would I stop giving you money um so for me you know that's that's pretty great <laughs> so there's two things to unpack there in the book you you mm. mentioned that uh, should you ever quit, you've actually made some very good friends that you would like the clients you, the you know that you would like to stay friends with, and you're you're all at a stage in your life where you're you're not actually taking on new clients, and you can be selective with uh, mm-hmm. with who's in your milieu, um, which is a very obviously fortunate position, very different than you know being on the street, let's say, and uh, and then you also mention this whole notion about being generous with money, where you know sometimes people. You, like, you can appreciate people just giving money, especially if there's no strings attached. Obviously, when it's transactional, there, is, there are strings attached. But um, you talk about the power of being just generous with money. And it, it sounds like that's something you may have done as well. Do you ever just give people money when you think they need it? Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, I I feel like sometimes with friends, it can make things um, a little Awkward. weird if you just give people money. Um, So usually, you know, I'll be like, oh, you know, like if I have a friend who can't make rent or is having like a hard time finding a job, I'll just be like, oh, you know, like you can do this thing for me or, you know, like something that like I will genuinely appreciate. Um, And they're like usually is pretty fast and then I can, you know, give them whatever amount of cash they need to make rent basically. what, What would this easy thing be? Just I'm trying to imagine like give an example. Oh, like, you know, I'm like, oh, I have like a bunch of papers that I need to scan to like send to my accountant. Like, can you just like come over? It's like, you know, two hours, like scan them and then, you know, like I'll send them over. So it's not like it's a lot of like 
skill or mental or physical effort required. It's just like, you know, something that I could probably do myself, but it's like, then they feel totally fine accepting the money and are like, yeah, like I did something to earn this um, instead of just like feeling guilty or like they have to make it up to me in some way. I feel like, um, yeah, I mean, there's there's been times I've also just gifted people money. Um, usually I try to have it be around like a holiday or a birthday so that it feels like something they can um accept without conditions or feel weird about it um and yeah i mean it's it's a really nice thing to be able to uh to do that for someone absolutely now so i'm flipping people might hear pages because i'm opening your book and i want to um quote uh some interesting stuff that you've said so let's see um you say I'd rather have a bad uh, sorry, <laughs> I'd rather have bad sex than a bad haircut. And and then you say a bit before that, which by the way is a great quote, um, <laughs> you know, getting my haircut is far more intimate than having sex. And then mm. and and then you say before that, uh, um uh you've often wondered why sex is considered is considered so sacred. And there's this like don't have sex with your friends, it could change the relationship. But for you, you say uh you've never really had a friendship end over sex um, and that, uh, you know, you don't imbue that much, I guess, power into it. Uh, and um, yeah. Do you want to maybe just kind of talk about that? Cause I mean, yeah. Um, you, 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 you know, you, you seem to approach sex in a very different way, but obviously are very sex positive and do give it a lot of kind of, you know, um, I guess energy, but for a different sort, I guess. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I have sex for all kinds of reasons, you know, um, I think a lot of people, um, will often associate sex very heavily with just one thing, like love or power or pleasure. Um, I think for me, you know, it could be all of those things. Um, usually for me, these days, it's about um, mutual pleasure, sometimes love. Um, I think while I was working a lot and seeing a lot of new people, it was often this very voyeuristic thing, though, where, yeah, I really enjoyed just like seeing what weird shit people were bringing to the table. Like, uh, you know, if someone had some crazy out of left field fetish what was some of the weirdest Um, shit that people have brought this this one guy which i i thought it was like very it was just something i had not thought of someone being into uh, but he just like wanted to be covered in shaving cream and then have me and my friend like rub our feet into him um while he jerked off which is definitely like uh i think a non-standard kink i had never heard of nor have i since heard of a shaving cream fetish but i mean it was he was so into it that it became like really hot and i was like yeah i can totally see like why you're into this like the texture is really interesting and it's like this sort of combination of humiliation um but also this like sensual goopy 
stuff and then feet of course which is a very common fetish um and and there's an exhibitionist uh the humiliating part is also being like as an exhibitionist Mm -hmm. kind of thing going on there and so the the shaving cream would be like on his like torso or what what were we talking about oh yeah it was like all over his body like his face his chest like fully covered yeah wow crazy (laughs) that's cool i've never heard (laughs) heard of that so that's that's pretty yeah. cool i think he might be one of the few people in the world i'm sure there's a couple other people out there at the very least there's never just one but <laughs> that's funny yeah, it's, and um you also mentioned uh, in the book it's interesting that uh learning boundaries that that taught you i, I quote how to how to give on my terms and that was something you say that christianity never taught me uh we were taught to turn the other cheek I had to learn how to walk away. And so Christianity in many ways, like, you know, it's, it's a lovely notion, this turn the other cheek, but knowing also how to place boundaries is important. And, and I guess like Mm. you didn't have that as, as a kid, right? Yeah. I think um, women, especially in my church were expected to be very like all giving, all forgiving figures who just supported the people around them, no matter what. Um, and initially it was really hard for me to say no to people, um, especially people that I cared about. I was worried that, you know, they would be really mad at me or anything else. Um, and sex work was really the perfect opportunity for me to really practice saying, you know, cause you have to say no all the time. Um, and you have to get really good to, at to, to protect being yourself or what? It. Yeah. Like what if a guy or just, says, you know, like, I don't want to use a condom. You end up doing it, right? so much stuff. Yeah. I mean, the condom one was always a big thing, but you know, it's like you would just end up doing so much stuff that you don't like. Like I know some people who hate having their ears licked, you know, and some clients are really into ear licking, but if that's like the worst thing in the world for you then you know if you can't like be like oh no like sorry I don't like that and like redirect someone um then you're gonna have a really miserable time um and it's one of those things where it's like maybe if you're have like dating around and you have a one-off hookup with someone and they like slobber in your ear and you're like all right like you know I'm not really gonna tell them right now but I'm not into that and I'm just probably not gonna see them again um, cause we're not really sexually compatible. You can kind of get away with that a little more, but, um, yeah, if you're just like having, having a high enough volume of sex, you gotta learn gotta to fine tune. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, okay, cool. And then, uh, also you mentioned in the acknowledgement, you, you mentioned someone by the name of, uh, I don't know if I should say her, her full name, but, uh, it starts mm-hmm. with Annabelle giving you a really good card reading. I, I assume it's some sort of oracle reading and that helping you kind of break through in terms of the editing and writing process. Do you want to kind of share a bit about the, yeah, the, that process and yeah, also the reading and yeah, how that, that, that affected you? Yeah. Let me pull up. I have it. She was, it was like a texting thing. So let me pull it up so I can read her. It's cool. Very words. convenient to have readings in a text form so you can, you can go back and find them. Oh yeah. I, 
I mean, I feel like I have so many friends that are like astrologers or do tarot readings that it's like do you, do you, do you believe in astrology? Constant. Um, I really love astrology. I feel like it's one of those things where like most things it's like if you base your entire life around it really in an intense way, um it might uh overcomplicate your life in some ways. You know, I don't think anyone should Mm-hmm. Um, but but taken with a grain of salt, it, it can give you yeah. some intuition, really some like, guidance. I really like, yeah, I really like using um, tarot cards. Well, I think we texted too much. I can't really find it. <laughs> but that's just a testament to our friendship. Um, and- yeah, Annabelle, uh, I was having this really hard moment where I was struggling with how I was going to write about certain people, like especially my mom in the book, because my mom and I have a really good relationship now and I really love her. Um, But I talk about some really intense stuff in there that has to do with my mom. And I was talking with Annabelle about how I should approach it and she pulled a card for me. Um, And I think it was... I think it might have been like a three of cups, actually. Um, but it was, she was like, you know, like, as long as you write about things in like a really kind and loving way, like taking the other people's feelings into consideration, um, then I think no one is, is going to take your writing the wrong way. Um, and a bunch of people who are in the book have actually read it and been like, really into their descriptions my friend iris actually took a photo of one of the pages she was in and posted it on her story because she liked it so much so that that to me i was like all right good like i didn't fuck up her part of the story you know um you did did a great job and also with your mom i thought you you handled that quite masterfully you know it's clear at the end that you know you love her and um, mm. And you guys have made amends, even though she doesn't necessarily like your profession, she's able to still, you know, maintain a, a good relationship with you. And, um, and you know, that it, it's very powerful. I mean, there, you do mention, I guess, uh, how challenging it was that when you were having all these migraines that uh, she kind of didn't believe you when you were a kid. That's what was very, was very difficult, right? Like, uh, yeah. Um, and I was like... Uh, I guess that's a sort of scar that one 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 maintains, I guess. Yeah, totally. I do think that um yeah, she she really has like uh changed a lot since my childhood and I'm really grateful for that. Um and I mean <laughs> well, I guess now it's like I I have this, you know, New York Times review under my belt if she's not proud of me at this point you know she's probably never gonna be proud so i think think, she is is she proud of you now i think she's gonna be proud of the new york times review for sure i think uh i think she's gonna like that (laughs) i I think i think she will be and and deservedly so um you know that's 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 a that's a really 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 big deal i mean yeah you, you you 
you approach a lot of things. And I think your mom, you know, she did the best she could uh, within the circumstances. Totally. She did not have an easy uh, time when she was with your dad, as you mentioned, and that was not mm. easy either. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's, it's cool that you're able to also like heal relationships as well. You know, when one does get that, that sense of, of a journey in, in your book. Mm -hmm. Tariq reached out to me a few years ago and asked me to write something for Repeater. Uh, and I actually had to go and Google to make sure that you guys weren't a vanity press because <laughs> I've actually had vanity presses reach out to me before be like, oh, we'll like publish something you write. And I'm like, well, <laughs> I'm not going to like pay someone to publish <laughs> my my shitty memoir. Um, but you guys were I was like, oh, wow, Repeater's like pretty big. And I noticed a bunch of my friends were actually following Repeater on Twitter. So I was like, oh, cool. Like very flattering that this press wants to have me write something for them. Well, you, certainly you're right. Any author that, you know, a publisher comes to them and, and asks them to pay to bring out a book, that is very suspicious. So anyone out there should not... <laughs> should not uh, you know, not go with any publishing deals of, the, of that sort. And you're not going to get any New York Times reviews uh, if you do that. Um, yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, that's pretty amazing. I um, I think maybe maybe I'll spill the beans and say that uh, the reason that Tariq reached out to you um, in the first place was, uh, was because of me. Uh, not that I can oh. take that much credit for it, but uh, <laughs> um, I do uh, look at what different people are saying in the different uh, different in different spheres, and I thought you had a really cool voice on Twitter, actually. And oh, uh, awesome! And you know that shows the power of Twitter, really. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, to discover people, it's uh, yeah, it's 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 a great platform. There are a lot of great platforms, and we we reach out to a lot of authors also that we see on Instagram, and we're always looking for interesting voices. And I, I felt like you really had something to say when you. You were on Twitter and I said, I told Tariq, hey, you know, reach out. Got nothing to lose. Let's let's see, you know, suss it out. See if there's, you know, if you really think there's, there's something we can do here. And, uh, you know, I love it when someone takes the initiative and, you know, you, and then out of nothing, something actually happens. Like that's, uh, that's what makes my life so exciting, I have to say. Yeah, totally. Wow. I really appreciate you uh, spotting me like that. Yeah. I, I feel like I... Had definitely wanted to write a book, but I felt like it was probably something I would do later in life. I think a lot of people come into writing um, when they're in their 30s or 40s. And so it was like sort of waiting for that. But um, yeah, I'm very well, the honored. The beautiful that thing about writing is, uh, you know, unlike a lot of other things, one usually gets better at it with age. Um, <laughs> and so I'm sure you'll have more books in you. Um, but already, I mean, this is quite a colossal achievement. So just for the, the listeners, how, how old are you today? Um, I'm 26. Yeah, that's right. That's, a, that's what I thought. So, I mean, uh, that's uh, <laughs> yeah, a lot to say already at 26 and I'm sure you'll have a lot to say for, for a very long time. At least I hope so. Um, and, um, yeah, so it sounds like quite, quite a whirlwind and, have, I, th I think, have you already had your, your book launches in New York yet or or, or not? No, we're going to be throwing a, a little shindig on the 20th. So I'm actually not sure when the podcast will be coming out. Maybe it'll be coming out after the parties, but 
Yeah, keep your eyes peeled for some spicy party coverage. October 20th. <laughs> That's cool. And maybe yep. at some point, uh, I know you're keen and you, you often uh, cross the Atlantic. So maybe at some point there'll be something uh, in in the UK as well. So we'll, we'll see. Oh, yeah. I think something in London is, is definitely in the works. I have a, a few friends there. And I know, you know, you guys have thrown some pretty fun book launches before. I think I saw there was something for uh, Junglist. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing yeah, it correctly. Yeah. That looked really Junglist cool. was, was an awesome party. Uh, I wish I was there, actually. Uh, I've got the t-shirt. Mm. They're, they're, they're really cool t-shirts. <laughs> I, do, I, I mean, do as represent. long as you got the t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I do I do represent, but they threw a cool, a really cool nightclub. They threw a really cool book launch. And yeah, it's all about jungle music. So I'm from the 90s. Uh, so really, yeah, really, really cool stuff. So I guess, yeah, we've been chit-chatting for a few minutes now and, you know, you've, people, I guess what they know is that you've, you, you've kind of broken out now, you're, you're getting a lot of attention, um, but you already had a lot to say before you, on, on, on your website, which yeah, I was just, I was, I was just trying to look you up right before the interview, you identify also someone, I guess, to Twitter as a sex worker, organizer, and writer, and you've got various projects, um, I guess, my 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 big question is, well, I guess it's not even it's a rhetorical question because I guess there's no way to really like kind of like put you into a box and put a label on it, right? Oh yeah, not into boxes or labels, that's for sure. Um, I even feel weird calling myself a writer because I feel like I do so many other things, but lately that's how I've been introducing myself when people ask. Oh, like, well, what do you do? <laughs> Just because it's the most relevant to what I'm doing at the moment. But it is. Well, let's talk about that. I mean, obviously, it's very humble not to not to think of not to to you know represent yourself always as as a I guess like a writer. But you do seem to be comfortable. I think thinking of yourself as an artist certainly, right? Because uh, or, or um, not necessarily. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I I used to do more like art world stuff um like when i was in college and i think that at that time i identified more as an artist um now i definitely identify a lot more with being a sex worker um and doing organizing work and of course now writing um so yeah i feel like i guess a lot of people do call the porn that they produce art but I really like calling mine porn and I like thinking of myself as a pornographer just because it feels more goofy, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I feel like it's more fun to say you do porn than to say you like make art movies or something, at least for me personally. Okay, cool. And that, that, that makes sense. Uh, um, but also certainly being a writer is a type of artist, right? Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, no matter what someone's doing, if they want to call it art, I think as long as it's done with intention, it can be art. Like if a plumber wants to call themselves an artist because they, you know, approach their plumbing with a lot of finesse and do these beautiful installations in people's homes, then I think, you know, why not? They're a plumbing artist. Sure. Um, I, I mean, I don't after feel all... Like, uh, it was Marcel Duchamp's uh, urinal, right? That uh, oh, uh, what a classic! You know, 
yes, uh, <laughs> created waves uh, in the art world, and you know, and yeah, plumbing is essential. I think he was he was even referring to the fact that uh, um, you know the sewers of uh, of Paris are this great network mm-hmm. that connects all of our bodily fluids, all of the Frisians, Frisians bodily fluids together, and this amazing mesh. Yeah, I feel like the all the people who participated in Dada, that's definitely one of the art movements I relate the most to just because it is so playful and jokey. It doesn't take itself too seriously. But there is still a lot of beautiful things that came out of it. You know, you don't have to approach art in this overly serious uh, sort of academic or analytical style to make something that's worth putting in a museum. I agree. I agree. Um, so it's interesting. So inst- you, you, it's for your performer. You, you like to call yourself also a pornographer, sex worker. Um, in terms of, I guess, still in terms of money, I assume, I don't know, you tell me, but the, the sex work is still the your bread and butter i guess at the moment is that right or uh yeah yeah my my sex work is definitely paying the bills um i don't really see new clients anymore just because i've been so busy with other projects um but i have a couple people uh that i get along with really well that i continue to see so you're at a point where yeah you're not taking any more clients and you can be selective and, and you've got a, I guess a good uh, work life balance then. Totally. Yeah. You mentioned already as a, as a young kid hanging out with, um, with other kids that you tried to, uh, to learn kind of how to mimic uh, their behavior so that you could, you know, appear to be more neurotypical. And you say that eye contact was the most challenging, but you, you pushed through your discomfort to be able to, to maintain that. Um, yeah. Do you want to, do you want to share a bit about that? Cause that's, that's very interesting. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think for a lot of people, eye contact, I think for a lot of autistic people, eye contact is really intense and can feel overwhelming at times. Um, I definitely have a lot of friends on the spectrum who I hang out with who, you know, have regular jobs and so have sort of learned how to pass as normal who have said like, oh, it's really nice hanging out with you because I feel like we can just not really look at each other and neither of us are particularly offended by it. Um, It is just like a, you know, it's one of those things where people expect a certain amount of eye contact in a conversation where they think, you don't like them or you're not really tuned in and paying attention um so i think while it's sometimes the most challenging for people on the spectrum it's also the most important thing to learn when you're talking to neurotypical people being gay at church camp was definitely (laughs) i feel like it was a funny funny way to you know have a first queer experiment. Um, although I don't know if it was really an experiment for either of us to have a first like real queer experience. Um, 
Yeah. I I mean, church camp is like so boring and terrible. I think a lot of people end up hooking up with people anyways. Um, there were definitely some kids who got in trouble for it. I think both of us being girls meant that we were able to get away with sneaking off together a lot more easily without anyone suspecting that we were up to anything uh anything sinful i guess you could say anything scandalous we ran out of time to wrap up the podcast i recommend following liara rue on instagram and twitter or via her website about liara.com that's a b o u t l i a r a.com